just having to navigate and being my own advocate was the hardest thing because I didn't want to put myself out there and risk exposing my parents. Welcome to Insider Career Conversations, a podcast that highlights unique careers and non-traditional education paths. I'm your host, Sylvia Juarez, an education consultant and first-generation advocate. This season's conversations touch on immigrant community advocate roles and how at times they require a specific type of community engagement. Each episode features guests well-versed in their field. We discuss their personal and professional journeys. My co-host this season is Yari Ortiz. She is someone I admire and have worked with for years to support undocumented students. In the past, we have focused on higher education, which evolved into recognizing the informal information and career advice students need to be successful in college and beyond. Now, we've reconnected and we're bringing those conversations with new perspectives. Let's get into it. Hi, Yeti. Hi, Sylvia. Thank you so much for having me here today. It's just amazing to be able to speak with you. I know we've been doing a lot of work together, and I'm happy to, for the first time, bring on Dr. Ramirez to this wonderful partnership, and I hope it continues. So I'm going to jump right into it, Doctor. I know that we're going to learn a little bit about your background. Yadi's going to ask that question. But I think in terms of you and what you do, which I'll let you share your profession, what is it that has been a passion of yours in terms of working with immigrant communities? First of all, Sylvia, thank you for having me today and being part of this project. I know Yadi and I work very closely together. So just like you have a professional relationship with her, we have a professional relationship with similar topics. I'm excited that I get to be part of the circle with you both. A little bit, you know, about me. I am a practicing dentist. I practice here in Hillsboro, Oregon, which is on the west side of Portland, for those that are familiar with the with the Portland area. And of course, my career has the passion of teeth. But my overall passion and dedication has been working with the undocumented community because I've been very fortunate to be the first undocumented documented individual to not only be accepted, matriculate, and graduate, but also now practicing from Oregon Health and Science University. So working with the undocumented community is a big passion of mine, and I really like to connect with these individuals, whether or not they're pursuing dentistry, if they're pursuing dentistry, that's fantastic. But I just love talking about this subject and letting them know that they have a voice, letting them know that, you know, anything is possible, that their documented status isn't a limitation in any way, shape or form. May I ask about your education journey as an undocumented individual? You know, I always say that I'm always envious and jealous of the students today because they have so many things available to them that I didn't. I graduated in 2010, and there was a stigma of, you don't share your story. You don't put yourself out there. So how is it that one asked to get put into university without sharing their story? And I remember just applying to the universities. It was like, well, you need a social, you need to be a U.S. citizen or a permanent resident, but there's leeways, there's other ways of getting there. And just having to navigate and being my own advocate was the hardest thing because I didn't want to put myself out there and risk exposing my parents. And I'll never forget an instance where I decided to share my story. 
I decided to put myself out there and I had the opportunity to talk to an admissions counselor because I really wanted to go to their private institution. And they said I was going to go ahead and get a full ride tuition. And it only ended up being just words. Mm. And they had me go in to that campus. I drove an hour and a half and I met with this individual and they had set up a meeting for a fi- with a financial aid director, which the financial aid director just said, nope, to come here, you need $40,000. Was it a well, year or- so 40000 a year was left after the, the tuition. And they start, you know, talking to me about FAFs and everything. And I had to interrupt the conversation. And I said, thank you for your time. Unfortunately, I'm not eligible for FAFSA. Fast forward to just me accepting a spot at Portland State University out of my, just that being my backup school, getting to orientation and my mom in tears telling me I wasn't going to be able to attend. Because we couldn't afford the state tuition, which was less than 10 grand a year. And I'll never forget that day because it was that day that I had a voicemail. And this was after my conversation with my mom when she had already, you know, said, hey, Mijo, we can't afford this. And I said, you know what, mom, it's okay. I have $3,500 in scholarship. I will be able to use it in a community college. I'll be able to take a class. I'll figure it out. So I go register for classes knowing my intention was to drop out. My intention was to drop out, work, go to community college, figure my figure a way to get to becoming a dentist. And I got out of registering for classes, finally had service on my phone. I had a voicemail, a voicemail from my French instructor saying, hey, sweetie, I know you're at orientation. I just want to let you know that my family and I are going to pay for you to go to school. Oh, Dr. Eddie, are you serious? It was, and I still get goosebumps to this I, day. I just got goosebumps too. I called her back and she was my French instructor. I'm like, mademoiselle, like I can't, I can't take this. I, you know, thank you, but I can't accept this. And she just said, you know what, Eddie, throughout this entire year, I wondered why it was that you weren't getting your way. Why it was that you're not getting what you deserve. Think of this as the Eddie Ramirez scholarship. Think of this as just as another scholarship opportunity that you applied for this year, but you actually did get instead of getting that denial. And it was because of her family and her support that I was able to go to school. I think it's important also to remember that individuals who are undocumented and are gaining a a very valuable skill set should or are already part of our community. Now, professionally, how has that kind of led you to moving into having your licenses? And has that been a hardship? It has also been a hardship. I think, you know, I was that first generation of an undocumented student going into the professional realm. Going into undergraduate, I felt like, you know, there was a little familiarity. You had bills like tuition equity. You had, you know, this kind of like, what really is an undocumented student just to get their bachelor's or their associates? The professional realm, whole nother world. A lot of unknowns, and they kind of chose to believe what they thought was the truth. And I think a lot of it is we can't put them through our program because they're not going to be able to use their licenses. They're not going to be able to use the curriculum. They can't afford it. And so a lot of it was like, what what do we do with the students? Are they international? Where do they balance? I mean, I applied to five schools. Out of those five, three just flat out said no because they didn't know what DACA was. They're like, we're not taking you because of this. You know, I was very lucky and fortunate to go to OHSU, Oregon Health and Science University, where I owe it a lot to the deemed admissions at that point, 
who sat down with me, who got to know me, let's investigate this, let's let's figure out what this means, and made it so that I was able to get in and graduate. And I think nowadays, I'm still bringing awareness on this topic on the professional level. I'm still advocating for students and, you know, dissipating those myths. Next month, I'm going to be presenting in St. Louis to the American Dental Education Association alongside Pre-Health Dreamers, which has how Yadi and I work together. And I'm going to educate them on what it means to be undocumented, what it means to be under DACA, why it is that we can practice. So I'm just excited to continue dissipating the myths and really genuinely telling these schools that it becomes an equity problem. You say you're a big fan of diversity, equity, and inclusion, but yet you're denying students because of their status, because they can't pay for it. Are we now evaluating all students and denying them admissions because they can't afford it? Right. No way have I been told we're evaluated on an ability to pay. Right. There needs to be a need blind on that and then provided that opportunity to move forward. And I think that's important. And I wear my my ally badge very proudly. And I think I've disrupted, as the new generation says, I've disrupted some of the, the status quo and started to align some of the things that need to be streamlined for undocumented students to be engaged at all levels, from being admitted to the high school levels and elementary schools and secondary to being able to have access to higher education. I think one of the things that I admire about Yadi is her commitment to the work is not only in terms of what she says, but she's also being part of PhD Dreamers. Yadi, I know we've talked about this, but can you tell us a little bit about the organization and how linking with individuals like Dr. Ramirez helps an awareness that's probably much needed, if not well overdue? Yeah, so I am the executive director of Pre-Held Dreamers. And just to tell you a little bit about Pre-Held Dreamers, we are a national organization that works with undocumented students who are pursuing health professional programs. And so our students are DACA recipients, just like Dr. Ramirez here, who's here with us today. But we also have students under temporary protective status, um, known as TPS. And we work with students who don't have any status at all and who don't have social security numbers or employment authorization cards. And I have been working with the organization for three years now. And before that, I was working in higher education at the Cal State University system, which is one of the largest systems of public education in the country. And so that's where I learned a lot about working with undocumented students. I've been working with undocumented students since 2006. That's where I learned a lot of like with ally trainings. And I really learned how, like Dr. Ramirez was saying, we're not being denied blatantly. But really, we're being blocked and pushed out just because of tuition costs, not having financial aid, all of the different type of processes that really lock out students just because they don't know how to navigate. And really, staff is not equipped to help advise the students on how to do all of these different processes. So without us knowing, we're really denying and blocking undocumented students out of a lot of our campuses, a lot of our programs. Even here in the state where we're more progressive, we see a lot of issues with implementation. So bills are passed left and right. We have AB 540 that was passed back in 2000 and what was it, one? That education code has been modified 
various times throughout the previous years. And if folks don't know what AB 540 is, it basically provides in-state tuition for undocumented individuals. However, a lot of times like admission offices don't know how to process the new implementation. We have students that are still being denied in-state tuition because of a small detail or students don't understand it's there. We, we really lack on teaching folks about it. And if that's happening in California, in other states, you know, there's even a bigger gap. If I may, Yadi, there are states that do have a similar opportunity for individuals to have in-state tuition. So it's a matter of looking up within your state what you have access to in terms of in-state tuition. And then there's a layer of who's going to provide you financial aid. Because I think some students get excited about being, oh, yay, I have in-state tuition. I don't have to pay international fees or out-of-state fees. But I think Dr. Ramirez touched on it that when you get past the admitted part, sometimes is not the challenge. It's then eventually figuring out how to pay for the cost. You will need to also find out what is the aligned financial aid access that you may have. It may be a scholarship. It may be an opportunity to be able to look at a certain application path, like in California. I hate to prop California all the time, but this is what we know, right? The California Student Aid Commission is one that governs the financial aid path for undocumented students in the state of California. But even that, not every, I know there's a misconception out there that, oh, well, if they're going to school, they're going to school on my dime and Lord knows where they got it and whatnot. No, these are individuals that have to compete for that money just as much as anybody else does for in-state money. Dr. Ramirez, if I may pivot a bit, how long does it take to finish a dentistry school? And is that a cost that becomes a personalized cost or for any individual now, the layer of being undocumented? No, I mean, that's a valid question. That's a valid question. I think, you know, the path to be a dentist if from start to finish with no breaks is eight years, four years of undergrad, you get your bachelor's, four years of dental school, you get either your DMD or DDS. And that cost is, that's on you. If there was limited opportunities for funding, at least my generation into undergrad, you can only imagine the limited opportunities of funding that there was for me. And I worked in admissions at Portland State University where I did my undergrad. And it was, oh, it was interesting go. because because when tuition equity passed in the state of Oregon, I was in the admissions side. So I worked closely with working with first generation low income families. That was my that was my focus on working with admissions. But tuition equity wasn't applicable to graduate professional programs. So um, it was it's always interesting the interpretation of of how laws are written. Bachelor's degrees, but not professional degrees. But aside from that, going back to the original question of cost, you know. This was a limitation for me. I was accepted to go to dental school in December of 2013 with a start date of August 2014. The representative from OHSU that really advocated for me said, apply for this scholarship known as the Scholars for a Healthy Oregon Initiative, which is actually a state-funded program that is there to promote individuals graduating from various healthcare professions to go into rural or underserved areas. And he said, apply for it. We'll see what happens. So I submitted my application in January, but then it came to April and I hadn't heard anything. And I think for April, I really had to decide, am I going to 
continue waiting for a potential denial and then have to pivot and go to a different career. At this point, you know, my admissions team had said, you know, we'd love to have you on the team, like more of a, of a professional permanent role, not just as a student worker. And it's just funny how things work out because I remember the date clearly, April 21st. I walked into the office and I told my supervisor, I said, I'm withdrawing from OHSU class 2018. And she said, why, Eddie? I'm like, you know, I have to be realistic. I've been applying to all these loans. The loans are denying me. No one is giving me any sort of funding, even though I'm saying, put it on my credit. You know, I'll pay. I don't care how high the interest is. Like, just let me achieve my dream. And I I kept getting denied. So I said, I need to be realistic and I'm going to turn it down. And I'm going to, you know, work here in admissions, find a career here. And that day she looked at the email. She said, don't send it. I said, okay. So four o'clock came and the same representative from OHSU that had helped me had called me. And interestingly enough, I had another voicemail saying me that I had been awarded the scholarship, which ended up being a full tuition scholarship to the program. Wow. Where I was only responsible for the clinical infrastructure fees, which were amount of money that I had been able to accumulate funds for already. And I think for Eddie's story, like that is still happening. You you brought up a great point, Eddie. Like even in states, you know, like California, New York, Oregon, New Jersey, Washington, Colorado, that have in-state tuition for undocumented students, for most of the time it is for undergrad. Undergrad. Mm-hmm. It's all undergrad. And a lot of folks feel like or think that it's it will follow you. Um, above that academic level, but it really doesn't. And so I always tell a lot of students, because again, the story is not just a single story. A lot of students get that letter of, you know, you have to, there's no financial aid for you. You have to go look for a loan. And schools don't really understand what a difficult situation they're putting the student in. You know, when they're having to ask somebody to co-sign a loan, and this is not a $10,000, $20,000 loan. These are hundreds of thousands of dollars. At Prehel Dreamers, we always tell students, don't, don't change your major just yet, which is what a lot of advisors mm-hmm. kind of yep. like, you know, yes. they kind of push that on them. Maybe you should try a different degree. Yeah. yeah, you should try a different degree. And what are they going to do with a different degree? If they go into teaching, it's going to be the same story. If they go into any different type of degree, they're going to hit very similar obstacles. And so how do we as educators support students? How do we as programs that, you know, really talk about equity and inclusion, how do we make it equitable and inclusive for students? Truly, Truly, right? Equitable and inclusive. Yes. Because I think that's a tagline right now that is really at times irritating to me because are you really sitting back and saying, am I including and making this available to all the population that we serve? Granted, some institutions don't serve all populations, But what I'm saying is very clear that if you're saying it, all of your policies and all of your paths onto your campus should carry that in one way or another, financially as well. Because inclusive and access has to do with money. Don't tell me it doesn't, because it does. And if my student is academically challenging themselves and they're doing everything they need to do, but yet because, again... Like Dr. Ramirez mentioned, you're you're not being forthcoming. You need to be clear with that. And I think that's really important. 
And there are so many ways that schools can help. Of course, like creating a welcoming campus, undocumented student program. You know, one of the big ones, of course, is financial aid once you get, especially into that professional program level or health-related program, dentistry or anything else, whether it's physical therapy, medicine, nurse, even nursing at the undergraduate level. We've had so many obstacles advocating for students, even in California. You know, really, we really want to teach and advise and encourage schools to create these type of options or or get creative with the way that you're supporting your students. There are programs out there that are connecting with banks to create loans for their students. You cannot get a federally funded loan. However, let me work with these other institutions, you know, whether they're banks or businesses, and create these loans for our students. So there are institutions out there that are getting creative. It does take time. So the thing that students really need to focus on right now is working with these programs early on. So contact those medical schools, contact those dental schools early, because more than likely, unfortunately, we're going to have to work with them and inform them on how to take those next steps to create welcoming and equitable campuses and admission processes for you. So, and I I would even add to that, Yadi, that those same institutions need to figure out how to advise within their communities. They need to be able that if they're going out and spending money on outreach and recruitment, that needs to be a specific and very deliberate way in which they connect with first generation, with those who are undocumented because they're the ones that know what they need. They're the ones that need to be able to share it. The element of surprise, at least as a first-generation student, was the scariest because I didn't know certain things that popped up in my undergrad and even in my master's program that I was, I scrambled. I just happened to get lucky. It shouldn't be about luck. It should be for those of us that plan and those of us that like to be, you know, complete with our organization and how we get somewhere, the structure of how we get somewhere. That should be inclusive. But I want to put aside a little bit of the heat right now that seems like all three of us are on right now. I think we're on the same soapbox pushing each other off. But I'd like, Dr. Ramirez, for you to tell us why dentistry? Let's go back to the early years of of young Dr. Eri Ramirez. Why did you choose dentistry? You know, it was on my last trip to Mexico. I was eight. And my aunt had just graduated dental school and I was at my grandma's house bored. I was like, there's nothing to do. And my aunt said, come, come to the office with me. And her office was my grandparents' garage that got turned into a dental office and she had me be her dental assistant. So I just sat there, gloved up, masked up and had a spittoon, which is the spitball. That uh-huh. nobody uses here, or I think nobody uses. I think I've seen one or two, but like my <laughs> job was to clean it. So I was spraying the water and cleaning all the blood, cleaning all the spit. I mean, I'm eight years old and I just, I fell in love with it. I returned home and told my parents I wanted to be a dentist. They thought it was just a temporary idea. And here I am. I'm not going to do the math years later. And <laughs> <laughs> I made it, you know, it was just, it was just a spark. I think I often talk to students that are just so bent on being doctors and um, in a, a Last season, we had a bone density, a technician, and she shared with me that one of the things that she, that she was connected to or that she loved about her job was that the bones are essentially not only because they get broken, but they also tell you what other ailments you may have. And some of the patients come from dentists that have referred that something may be wrong in other parts of your body because of your dental health. 
I always tell people, I'm like, yes, I'm not a real doctor. I'm not an MD. But our first two years are medical school. We have to go through full, like, gross anatomy. We have to look at everything. And then we literally have a full set of head and neck anatomy. So everything's shoulder up. We're responsible for knowing. So we're not just focused on the teeth, you know. When a patient comes in and they're swollen, I, I look at where are they swollen? What other vasculature can be at risk? Do I need to send them to the ER? What are their symptoms? So it's not just the tooth is the last thing I look at. I like look at everything overall. And I mean, anything, we can do anything cosmetic from Botox that has nothing to do with teeth mm-hmm. to doing fillers to looking at, you know, just the overall statue of our lip support, you know, our tongue. We're the ones that are more likely to detect a head and neck cancer. Our new patient exam or even a recall exam, I do a full on head and neck exam looking for any abnormalities, anything that can be a soft tissue lesion or in the x-rays that can be, you know, a calcified lesion. So there's more that we examine and look at than just teeth. Do you have continued education? I know some of our students shy away from careers that you have to continue to educate yourself or keep current. Yeah, I mean, we definitely have continuing education. We have, it's mandated by our, by our license. We have to have 36 hours of, of CE. So we have to make sure we're on top of it. And some of it is specific. So there's certain categories that we have to make sure we complete every two years. And I would just say really quick, like folks like Dr. Ramirez are really necessary within the healthcare fields. I've had students who are immigrants, undocumented, low income, historically underrepresented, historically underfunded, who have never been able to go see a dentist. Yes. Even here in California, where we do have some health coverage for undocumented individuals, especially for the youth, they still have years without ever seeing a doctor or even seeing a dentist. And so even like when I was working at the university, we would do health clinics pop-ups for our students. And I would have students in their 20s, mid-20s, who had never been to a dentist before, who didn't even know that that was an act, you know, that it was accessible to them. We don't think about what a luxury it is sometimes to be able to go see a dentist, especially like for our immigrant communities. They don't get this a lot. So I really want to say like for Dr. Ramirez, folks like you are really necessary and I hope more students get encouraged to go and be dentists. We need you. It is difficult. We're trying to do advocacy at the dental programs to change admission policies so that they have more financial aid for for undocumented students. We're trying to go in there and do that training. So we're hoping things change a lot quicker than what they have been in the past years, but they're really necessary within our our healthcare system. Everybody always talks about the access to care problem. They don't have access. You know, the American Dental Association has the Health Policy Institute, which says that the new generation of dentists, they're going to be more individuals of color, more females. And if you look at research, those that come from these communities are more likely to return to those communities and provide care, which is more of an incentive for these programs to take these individuals into their programs and support them. Yes, absolutely. And I think you leave us on a fantastic note. It's important that we do look at the things that are in place. While we've talked about at length some of the things that need to be put in place, there are organizations that are moving forward to include people of color, first generation. And I'm really excited that you're out there. Thank you, Yadi and Dr. Ramirez for being with me today. I appreciate the conversation and look forward to the next one. Thank you for having me today. This has been great. Thank you for having us on this platform and bringing us to this table. 
Stay tuned for more insider career conversations that showcase career paths within immigrant community advocacy. We appreciate you listening and look forward to the next time. Insider Career Conversations is a production of Juarez Consulting. For more information, you can visit JuarezConsultingInc.com. This episode was produced by Silvia Juarez Magana with production help and editing by Kazmara Hall.